Lord, we sang the words, let the king of glory enter in. And we all need that today. And maybe we sang those words without giving it much thought. But Lord, we pray today in our time of opening up your word that you would prepare yourself room, that you would move into our hearts. Lord, if it's necessary, would you just invade? Would you break down hardness and darkness? But God, would you also open our hearts to willingly, gladly receive you today? Lord, we need you. We need you to work through our foolishness, our sinfulness. Lord, we pray that this would be a morning where you grab a hold of more of who we are, more of our hearts, more of our lives, that clenched fists would be released, that our grip would be loosened, that we would become increasingly yours. And so, Lord, would you help us? And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We are going to be in Matthew chapter 2 this morning. If you need a Bible, if you'll just lift up your hand. Anyone need a Bible? We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. We've got a hand over here. Anyone else? Just boldly lift it up. If you do not have a Bible, feel free to take that with you. If you do and you just want to borrow for the day, just leave it in your seat. And then one of our ushers would make sure that we collect that at the end. But we believe in God's Word here. And we love to open it up and study what it has to say. And so Matthew chapter 2 is where we're going to be. This is our last week of Advent. So every year we celebrate five weeks of Advent now, some people think it's a little odd that after Christmas is over, we still have another week of Advent, but we do every week. Um, next week, we're going to be introducing in our service just a, the New City Catechism. And Eric's going to be taking us through that and talking about the Bible as a foundation for our lives. And we're going to be encouraging us as a church to work through this catechism together to continue to strengthen our biblical theological foundation. And so we're going to explain more of what that looks like next week, and we'll be incorporating that catechism into our worship services throughout the year. This provides not only the opportunity for us to grow in our biblical theological understanding, but also the opportunity for families to come together or people who live together in apartments or homes to be able to come together and focus on God's Word as believers who are in a dwelling place together. And so we're going to look forward to opening the Bible and praying together as families in the, years, in the year ahead. And so more about that next week. But this is our last week of our series that we've called Let Every Heart Prepare Him Room. And we've been trying to look at the Advent story from different perspectives. And so this is the final week. We want to look at the wise men. And so as Jesus comes down and enters into this world, what do we learn from their story? And I've entitled the message this morning, The Spreading of Jesus' Fame, because in a short time already, we're going to see people coming from a great distance to find out more about this king child. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 15 is where we're going to be reading this morning. So follow along as I read. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them 
where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Now, this is a very important passage for us, giving us just a glimpse into the childhood of Jesus. At my house, we have photo albums um, that we've used. For some of you who are younger, that's the old-time way to preserve pictures. But we have these. They're actually hard copies. Um, A lot of our pictures are now kept on the computer, and we've had videos that we've taken of our children. We've now transferred them to DVDs. And oftentimes on our birthday... Joni loves to pull these out so that we can reminisce and, you know, look at the pictures. Oh, you were so cute when you were that age, you know, and just on and on. Just a lot of warm memories that are there. And we always have these classic lines, you know, and so when it's time to get the DVD out, oh, I can't wait. And there's, you know, classic lines like Amanda holding her younger brother and she's eating something and we say, you know, Amanda, would you, what is your brother eating or what are you eating? And she says, Daddy. Andrew eats from mommy's boobies. It's like, you know, those are the classic lines. We just love to see those things. And so we just remember them. And so there's a whole DVD there, and these lines keep coming out. I mean, some of them we have memorized word for word. We just love them. But they're snapshots of different stages of our children's lives. When you think about Jesus, if we were to take the Gospels and pull out snapshots of his life, we really only have four. We have the visit of the shepherds. He's in the manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes, and the angel appears to the shepherds like we looked at last week, and then they come, and they come to, to worship him. We also have the scene where Jesus is presented at the temple. And from that, we learn that his mom and dad are really abiding by the law of Moses. They really want to be good, faithful, God-fearing Jews, and they're following the law and what it lays out for them. And so we get that little snapshot. We also see the trip to Jerusalem 
where Jesus engages with the religious leaders of the day and having theological discussions. And, and oftentimes we think in terms of, well, of course, he's God. He has all this theological knowledge. But actually what that scene shows us is Mary and Joseph are actually teaching him the law. He understands this stuff. At a young age, he's really grasping on to theological concepts such that he's actually engaging religious leaders. And then the little aftermath where mom and dad are back on the way back and it's like, uh-oh, where's, where's Jesus? And he's back in Jerusalem still and so they run back and try to find him. Get that little insight into their little family dynamic there. And then fourth, the fourth snapshot we get is this particular scene with the wise men. And so in this particular scene, we, we begin seeing that Jesus' fame, even at a young age, is spreading. So let's, look our, let's move our way through this passage. In the first couple of verses here, we have an inquiry by the wise men. So these guys show up in the days of Herod the king, wise men from the east. Now, this story in many ways is simple, but yet also it lacks completeness. And so we end up with a lot of questions like, who are these men? Where are they from? What is this star? What do they mean by worship him? Were their lives transformed? Is this just homage being paid to a king? There's a lot of myth that surrounds these men that come. When you think about what little we know about them, I mean, I imagine if you receive Christmas cards uh, during this particular season, I imagine you have one with wise men on the front. And oftentimes they have crowns because they're considered kingly figures at times also. Think about the number of Christmas songs that we sing that have something to do with these wise men as a part of it. I mean, they're the focus of a lot of what we think about when we think about Jesus. Well, who are they? It simply says here, wise men from the East. And again, we can look back into this particular time period and learn about who these men are. I mean, it very well could be. When you think about historically, even what happens in the Bible, you've got a kingdom of Israel, um, Saul, David, and Solomon are the kings. And then it's divided into two, north and south. The northern kingdom referred to as Israel, the southern kingdom as Judah. And because of continued disobedience, the Assyrians, who are the world power at the time, come in and they take the northern kingdom away into exile. We really never hear from that kingdom again. The southern kingdom continues on because there's a number of revivals that happen. But eventually, the Babylonians, which is then the kingdom, the powerful kingdom of the time, they come in and take the southern kingdom into exile into Babylon. And so they actually are taken as a people. And the Jews are there and they actually have an impact in the lives of what's going on in Babylon. Babylon. Think about Queen Esther from the book of Esther. Here's a Jewess who is actually in, a, in the harem of the king. She's got the ear of the king. Think about Daniel. This young man rose up in prominence, one of the key leaders in all of Babylon. So more than likely, they had dialogue. They knew of Daniel and his praying toward the temple in Jerusalem. Daniel's the one who was searching the scriptures. He must have had some kind of contact with scrolls that had scripture on it. And he learns from Jeremiah that the exile is going to be 70 years long and he must have had contact with people. And so there's knowledge of the Jewish world. Think about Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king. He's got the ear of the king too and he's telling him about the people back in the land. 
there must have been something that went on here. Daniel never came back to land. He stayed there for 70 years they were there. But eventually, in three returns, and that's the story of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament, in three returns, they come back to the land. So these wise men, from what we know historically, they used a lot of what we would call science They were very into astrology, which is why we have a star here. I mean, they were interested in these kinds of things. But they were also interested in religious ideas. They did a lot of magical incantations. And so they they had a lot of just magic and and sorcery that might have been involved in that. Demonology was even a part of what they studied. Um, they, They used all of these things. Wisdom. Very wise people, and so they they wanted to understand how to live life and all of these things being pulled together, science and wisdom and these religious ideas. They pulled all these together. They wanted to know how to live now, and they wanted to know something about the future. Very curious and very wise in what they understood. We could even go back to Daniel chapter 2, and it's very interesting to read there. Daniel gets brought into this wise men group. In chapter 2, in verse 2, it even refers to the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans. And the king pulls all of them together to be his counselors. And later on in the passage, it refers to all of these groups as the wise men. And when the king wanted to know something, these are the people he assembled together. He had a dream. And he wanted them not only to tell them the interpretation, but what the dream was. And so you've got all these things going on. This, these men were the go-to guys of that particular time. And so very powerful group of advisors had access to the king. And so they are somehow, they must have some awareness of Hebrew scriptures and their study of the stars. God uses all of that. And they're interested enough that they travel possibly up to 900 miles. If they're coming from Babylon, 900 miles away in order to understand this event. And so they're, they're asking, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? They have some kind of knowledge that they're bringing to this particular situation. Kings, they could have been themselves. Western tradition says that there were three of them, which fits in good with our manger scenes. I know all the ones in my house, except the one from Peru, has three um, wise men that are a part of this scene. The Eastern tradition is that there were 12 of them. And now, if we had 12 wise men on our manger scene, it wouldn't fit where we put it. So we're glad there's only three. Fits perfectly right there. But really, when we think about this story, and think about what's going on, Jesus is older now. In this passage, he's referred to, and not as the infant in swaddling clothes, but the child. We also see later on the wise men come to, not to the stable, but to the house where Jesus is. We see later on that Herod's edict that he issues is that every child under two. Now, he inquires about the star. He's very thorough in his investigation. So more than likely, Jesus could have been up to two years old at this time. And so, really, our manger scenes, we need to move the wise men out of the way. Uh, They belong later in the story. But it is nice. The manger scenes usually pull all of this together for us. And so that's all we know about the wise men. What we read here, what we maybe can pull together historically. But what is this star? It says that they've, they've seen this star. And some would say it's some kind of natural phenomenon. So they try to look at meteors or whatever historically. Others would say that, no, this is a supernatural phenomenon. God is the one who uses this star. It could have been, you know, any, you know, some kind of angel that was leading them. 
Bottom line is, whatever this is, it is leading them. They are following this star and it disappears. And then all of a sudden, there it is again. And it points to where Jesus is to be found. And so it's a guide to Jesus. In verse 9, it shows that finally when it shows up again, it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. It's definitely a marker of some type. And what is the reason for coming to Jesus? We saw his star, verse 2, when it rose and have come to worship him. And what is involved in this worship? We aren't told too much about it. They bring gifts. More than likely, this is something would be very common. I mean, even in our culture, when a child is born, we bring gifts. But especially back in this culture, it was something to honor. So from one country to another, one nation to another, when a king's child was born, that they would bring these gifts and pay proper respect and homage. But maybe it was nothing more than that. We don't know if this was life transforming for them, if they came to worship the one, as we saw last week, the Savior, the Christ, the Lord. Perhaps it was just another king's son, but we can't leave Jesus as just another king's son, a religious belief, a religious icon, something cool to pull out at Christmas and put on our table, the baby Jesus in a manger. No, this is more than just a good story to be told annually. We want to consider this morning that Jesus as king is to be integrated into our every life. Prepare him room is the idea here. This is not just a baby. This is a king that deserves all of our reverence and are worshipped. So let's, that's, the, that's the wise men. They inquire about this. But let's look at the response of Herod. It's very interesting in verses 3 through just the beginning of verse 9. We see he's troubled. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And it seems that what's going on here, we don't get much information. He, he smells a rival is coming on. What we do know about Herod historically is he had a lot of concern about rivals, especially from the East. Not so much from the West, but especially from the East. And you could look at a number of historical documents that would point to this. But also, even within his own family, he had 10 wives, multiple children. He even feared rivals in his own family and would have them put in prison or even put to death. Why? To secure his throne, to protect his power that he had. And so we see that he's troubled by all of this, probably because of a rival. But it goes on in verse 3 and says, and all Jerusalem with him. I don't know what all this troubling is, but what does seem to be interesting is this birth of the baby that caused such wonder in the shepherds. Has this story even moved forward? Is it breaking out there? Are they aware of this in Jerusalem? They seem to be clueless in Jerusalem, just a few miles away about all that has transpired. Or are they so bought into Herod's dominion over them that somehow God is being crowded out of the way? We don't know. But they don't seem to be brought into this fact that the one who has been born is a Savior. He's Christ. He's the Lord. The lack of celebration by them. You would think that with this forward movement throughout the Old Testament, that when these kings come in and said, where is he that's born king of Jews? There would be some intrigue here. They would be saying, whoa, we're going with you. We don't see any hint of that in the story. It seems like the wise men just go by themselves. Their response seems to be, here's your answer. You're going to find the child in Bethlehem. 
Is that all you need? See you later. I'm going back to my regular business. Just the lack of interest is unbelievable to me in this story. You see, the story of Jesus, the story of God's word can actually get old for us if we aren't careful. Our, our culture can become so saturated with Christmas carols and the message of Jesus that it just becomes something that we blow the dust off of once a year and, and, and celebrate this cultural event. It seems like they've marginalized God and his plans in this story. But it goes on and we see his deceptive plan. Once they search the scriptures and they find out in verse 5 and 6 that it's going to be born in Bethlehem, then Herod summons the wise men secretly. And again, we aren't told why he does this, except perhaps maybe there were some who were eager to know Messiah. There were some who were looking. We see that at Jesus' birth. Um, um, Simeon. This is the one my eyes have seen. John the Baptist was going to be pointing the way as well. Later on in Jesus' life, everything is going to continue to point toward him. But secretly, he wants to keep this secret. He wants his plan to be foolproof. He doesn't want any commotion. He doesn't want any crowds. He wants to secretly get in and destroy this king. And this is what we see in the gospel as the first attempt to get rid of Jesus. Now, eventually, they're going to put him on a cross and they think they got it done because they don't realize ultimately what God is doing. But this is the first attempt. We see what's going on. And we see later on in verses 13 through 15 how far Herod is willing to go to get rid of Jesus. He's going to destroy a bunch of baby boys in this. And so Herod then sends him on his way and the deception is that he says, hey, when you find the child, come let me know because I want to come worship him as well. And so he joins in with them. Yeah, if you find this king, I want to be a part of this as well. But in the back of his mind, we know his plan from verses 13 through 15. And so what is the focus that we see on Jesus here? Well, first of all, there's a focus of worship. Again, whatever that means, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. This is such a contrast to the troubled sense of Herod and the people back in Jerusalem. They see the star and they're rejoicing over what's going on. They're going to find the king, the king of the Jews. It's such a contrast here in this passage. And they eventually find the child with, his mo- with Mary, his mother. They fell down. They worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Then they're warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. So they bring their gifts This seems to be nothing more than wanting to pay respect to him. It's also interesting, though, in this passage that Mary and Joseph are very poor. We know that when they bring Jesus to the temple, they don't offer the normal sacrifice. They offer, according to the provision of the law, the sacrifice that a poor person could bring. They don't have much money. And here, Herod's going to come after them. So what are they going to have to do? They're going to have to go down to Egypt for a time until Herod's dead, until the baby's life is no longer in danger. How do you do that as a poor person? It's so fascinating here that it almost seems as if God provides them the means for this, brings them these extravagant gifts. Why? So they could be wealthy? No, provision for their journey. This is something that God does throughout Scripture. 
Whatever God is calling us to, he will finance for us. And we, once again, we see this, how he provides for his people. It's just a phenomenal part of the story to me. But Jesus' fame is spreading. Again, we don't know how that message got there, why they came to find Jesus, but God will get his message out there. And God continues to get his message out there. We are sending people out from this church to take that message, the Balarams, the Ors, and all that they're doing. We are sending people out to get this message done. But God also works through dreams. Look what he's doing here in this passage. He works through dreams. God is still working through dreams today. He's still calling people to himself in some of the least reached places of the the world. We feel like, oh, if we can't get a missionary in there, they're never going to hear about Jesus. Oh, you just watch God work. God will get that message out there. He is moving in our world, whether it's TV, radio, literature, balloons that are flying in North Korea and dropping literature all over the place or through dreams. God is making his message known. But once again, we need to remind ourselves that God's primary means of making his message known is us. We are ambassadors. We are spokespersons for God. This message has gripped our hearts and it is to be proclaimed. It's not to be hoarded. We don't just come to church and secretly talk about our message. Let's talk about Jesus and then we go out and forget about it. No, it is a message that is to define everything about our lives. It is to be proclaimed and And again, we we continue to pray that God would lay on my heart and your heart, all of our hearts, desires to proclaim that message to others who need to hear. We need to be praying for one another's families, loved ones, people we work with, neighbors. We need to pray that God would use us and we need to be bold and proclaim so that message is told. And so worship is a part of this story. But then also we have the protection he tells the wise men to go back another way. Herod's concocted a plan. And it says in the text in verse 13 that angel of the Lord comes to Joseph and, and warns him and says, you need to leave. Herod's about to destroy the child. And so they, they leave and depart for Egypt. And they remain there until the death of Herod because he comes in and he kills all these children. We see in verses 16 and following uh, the massacre that takes place. God is protecting Jesus. He is making a way. This is the Savior, the Christ, the Lord, and God is going to preserve him. Throughout the Bible, we see God preserving to make a way. So much we could say about that. But here, once again, God preserves because he's making a way. But what really stands out to me about this story is one child is saved while many are massacred. I mean, how many would this be? When the people are taken out of the land, they go to Babylon. They come back in three returns. And in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, we see the different returns. Early in Ezra, we see that the people who come back to Bethlehem were 123. Very small group comes back to Bethlehem. By the time of Jesus, it's estimated there were probably 1,000 people living in Bethlehem. So when we think about boys under the age of two who were massacred, we estimate probably somewhere between 10 and 30. Up to 30 boys were massacred on this day. And we see the weeping. Verse um, 18 refers to a voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. We might ask, why? Why does God choose to work in this way? 
Oh, it's, it's great to rejoice over Jesus being saved, but many families were ripped apart at this time. Babies ripped out of children, ripped out of their hands and destroyed right in front of them. How do we answer such questions like this? This part of the story just stands out. And John Piper wrote a poem. It's called The Innkeeper. It's, it's a fascinating poem. And in this poem, Jesus, two weeks before he's going to die on the cross, goes back to the inn and meets the innkeeper. An in- innkeeper who's lost an arm and lost his family. His name is Jacob. And he come, his wife's name is Rachel, by the way, when you look at verse 18 there of chapter 2. And Jesus comes back, and let me pick up the story towards the end and read to you this account that actually brings a little life to this passage for us. Jacob says, we got a reputation here that night. Nothing at all to fear in that we, in that we thought. It was of God. But in one year, the slaughter squad from Herod came. And where do you suppose they started? He continues, not a clue. We didn't have a clue what they had come to do. No time to pray, no time to run, no time to get poor Joseph off the street and let him say goodbye to Ben or me or Rachel. Only time to see a lifted spear smash through his spine and chest. He stumbled to the sign that welcomed strangers to the place and looked with panic at my face as if to ask what he had done. And he turns to Jesus and he says, young man, you ever lost a son? The tears streamed down the Savior's cheek. He shook his head. He couldn't speak. And Jacob continues, before I found the breath to scream, I heard the words, a horrid dream. Kill every child who's two or less. Spare not for aught, nor make excess. Let this one be the oldest here. And if you count your own life dear, let none escape. I had no sword, no weapon in my house, but Lord, I had my hands and I would save the son of my right hand. So brave, oh, Rachel was so brave. Her hands were like a thousand iron bands around the boy. She wouldn't let him go. And so her own back met with every thrust and blow. I lost my arm, my wife, my sons. The cost for housing the Messiah here. Why would he simply disappear and never come to help? They sat in silence. Jacob wondered at the stranger's tears. And then Jesus responds, I am the boy that Herod wanted to destroy. You gave my parents room to give me life. And then God let me live and took your wife. Ask me not why the one should live, another die. God's ways are high and you will know in time. But I have come to show you what the Lord prepared the night you made a place for heaven's light. In two weeks, they will crucify my flesh. But mark this, Jacob. I will rise in three days from the dead and place my foot upon the head of him who has power over death. And I will raise with life and breath your wife and Ben and Joseph too and give them, Jacob, back to you with everything the world can store 
and you will reign forevermore. I appreciate John Piper and just the way that he's brought together this story. But the bottom line is we live in a messed up world. We're up against all kind of difficulty in this life in which we live. And sometimes God moves in and stops, changes, and sometimes he doesn't. But mostly, every day, our lives are up against the consequences of sin. ISIS, Boko Haram, other terrorist groups, abuses of all sorts, leaving people with painful scars, natural disasters that bring on great destruction, dads deserting their families, moms deserting their families, sex and human trafficking, murder, theft, ridicule, gossip, divorce, racial violence, corrupt governments, etc. We face it everywhere. And people get mad at God. But sin is the problem. The consequences of sin in this world in which we live, there will be pain, there will be consequences until the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our Lord. It's our own heart that is the problem. So in this story, when we read this, one side of the story is an arrogant, power-hungry, abusive king who wields his power to destroy, looking out for his own interests, destroying innocent lives. It's the effects of living in a fallen world. The other side is this. God is preserving a Savior. He's making a way. He's at work in the midst of all of this mess. And so what do, we, what do we do with our stories? How do we understand our story in light of all this? So much of what we're up against is the sin and the consequences of it. And it's just going to hurt. It's just going to be painful. It's, but as Paul reminds us, this momentary light affliction because our hope is not in this world being righted. It's in a future hope that God is going to come back and he's going to restore this kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord. And so we look to him. He is the one who is king. He's king of all. And we have to trust him in the midst of all that we're going through. So how do we respond to this story? How do we respond to making him room? Ultimately, we've got a Herod here who's hostile, who's angry, Wants to destroy Jesus, and maybe your heart is there today too. Maybe you're angry at everything God stands for, including Advent. God would want you to make him room. God will want you to realize in the midst of all that pain and destruction, the things that cause you anger toward God, he's making a way to redeem you so that you could know abundant life now and eternal life to come. We also see indifference in the story, the chief priests and the scribes. Maybe that's where you are today. You know the message of Jesus. But it just doesn't have any impact in your life. You can come to church and have a wonderful time, but then you can leave all that behind and move out into your real world. You have wonder, but it hasn't led to worship. God would be calling you to make him room for everything in your life. We also have the worship of the Magi, the wise men, They respond to whatever degree it's true worship. We don't know, but we know the response of true worship that it should should be there. And maybe that's you today. You are worshiping the Lord in the way he deserves to be worshiped, the way he calls you to worship. God would want you to stay the course on that and to continue to follow him. But whatever our posture is right now, this we need to know for sure from this story. Once again, we are reminded this is no ordinary baby. This is king of kings. 
This one is Lord of Lords, and he deserves every ounce of worship that we have to give. He deserves for us to yield every part of our life to him because we know that where all this is leading, whether he's a baby in a stable, whether it's his life here on earth, whether it's on the cross, in the grave, right hand of the Father, he is worthy of all worship. We see that in the book of Revelation. That day is going to come. Philippians 2 reminds us every knee will bow, every tongue will confess because he is Lord. And what does that mean for our everyday life? It means we yield everything to him. Painful things, things that make no sense. Joy. We, we give it all to him. We, we yield everything to him. And maybe today, what it means for you to prepare him room is to release that part of your life that you've been holding on to. Maybe there's something that you've got a tight grip on in your life and the Lord is saying, I want you to prepare that room for me. I want you to yield it to me today. What does it mean for you to say you are king and I want you to have all the territory of my being? So what what does that mean that you would give him today? And you might even want to symbolically think about holding that in your hands and saying, I know what that is. It would be this, Lord, please help me. I want to give this to you. I know that I haven't yielded everything to you, Lord. There's a, there's a sin that I continue to live out in my life. I want to give it to you. There's this painful thing. I'm holding grudges or I'm angry at you. I want to give it to you. Or it's my money. I love it. I love it. And I want to give it to you. It's my time. I just hoard it for my, I want to give it to you. It's the gospel. I want to give it. Lord, please take that territory of my life. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads right now. Walt's going to come and he's going to lead us in a song. And I want you to think, and you might even, again, you might want to cup your hands together. What is it? The wise men brought him gifts because he was king. What is it that you need to give to him? Because he is king over you. And he deserves all of you. He asks for all of you. What is that today? Lord, please help each one of us to know what that means for us. Please, Lord.